Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Weekend Warm-Up Podcast. This is Chuck Smith, and I've got a special guest this week, one of our former colleagues at BFW and who has moved on to greater things at the Daily Mail, Jake Fenner. Jake, how's it going? I know you'll be covering the Germany versus United States match, hence the reason you're on here to talk. Uh, How you been? I've been doing okay. I can't be a special guest if I'm constantly coming on these days, but you know, <laughs> I do appreciate the uh, the warm welcome to to say the least. Jake, it's always special when it's someone other than me. I mean, given the amount of times that I'm on BPW these days, I think the listeners are welcoming a, a new voice to be heard. So I'm sure that, that they appreciate it. <laughs> now, now, Jake, you've. Obviously, you're you're probably excited to be able to cover these games. Uh, you're going to be covering the United States and Germany and Connecticut, and then you'll be moving down to follow the United States team in Nashville. Uh, this is a, a key period for these international teams, especially Germany. Uh, what are your thoughts on how things uh, are looking heading into this uh, in terms of just the Germany-United States game? Like I said, for you, it's got to be a pretty cool experience, but it's also work, and you've got some uh, journalistic uh, type things you're going to be working on. So what are you expecting out of this one? I mean, the weather for the game should be not that great. It's supposed to be like mid-50s Fahrenheit. Don't freak out everyone that listens to this in Celsius. The world's not boiling in East Hartford, Connecticut. Um, but it's going to be it's a mid-afternoon game here. So it's like 3 p.m. here or something like that. It's going to be raining in mid 50s. So it's absolutely perfect New England uh, or mid-October weather, actually. Um, I think that in terms of like the occasion rather than how I think the game's going to be played out, I think it's going to be a pretty decent litmus test for Julian Nagelsmann and how he's going to start off. I don't think it'll be like, you know, the thing that you can define him on, right? You're not going to go into this game. Germany's going to lose and you're going to think, Oh, it's, it's all over. <laughs> right. It's going to, it's going to well, be maybe. good. Some people will. <laughs> Some will. Well, I'm saying go. Uh, I think that it'll be a good, test of tactic it'll be a good way for him to try and you know like move things like work things out because if we recall from his Bayern days Nagelsmann was pretty tactic oriented and now that he's essentially working within a structure where he doesn't have that ability to work those tactics but he also does have about seven to eight players on this team that he's worked with before whether or not they're still at Bayern Munich or they've moved on to other teams that are aware of his system and how he operates so I'm interested to see that hybridization how that's going to work out whether or not he's going to be able to implement everything that he wants or if it's just going to be a matter of let's just see where things go yeah and I think that's a that's a key aspect of all of this I mean we've known Julian Nagelsmann to tinker and when he was at Bayern Munich he seemingly tinkered day to day practice to practice game to game everything was changing constantly in this format with the national team. You can't do that. 
But one thing that Nagelsmann could do was have an impact on his squad selection. And just to remind everyone of who Nagelsmann went with, I'll quickly rip off the roster, Jake, and then I want to get your thoughts on some of these players. Uh, at goalkeeper, Nagelsmann called in Oliver Bauman, Bernd Leno, Marc-Andre Ter Stegen, and Kevin Trapp. Uh, on defense, Nagelsmann called in Robin Gozins, Mats Hummels, David Raum, Antonio Rudiger, Nicholas Sula, my personal favorite, Jonathan Ta, and Malik Tiao. Yeah. In the midfield, uh, Robert Andrich, Julian Brandt, Chris Furyk, Leon Goretzka, Pascal Gross, Ilkay Gundogan, Jonas Hoffman, Yashua Kimmich, Jamal Musiala, Leroy Sané, and Florian Verts. Of course, many of those players that are listed as midfielders could be considered attackers. And that attacking group, Kevin Behrens, Nicholas Fulkrug, Kai Havertz, and Thomas Muller. A lot of controversy surrounding those squad selections. Nagelsmann opted to bring back some proven leaders like Mats Hummels, Thomas Muller, uh, even Leon Goretzka. <clears throat> but uh, he also had a little bit of an influx with some new blood in terms of Robert Andrich, uh, calling back Pascal Gross after Hansi Flick gave him his first call, Chris Furyk. This is a, a wild roster in my eyes, Jake. Uh, how do you think this all comes together, given the different types of personalities that Nagelsmann has pulled into this? And, and honestly, the varying types of ability and stages of their careers I mean, this is a very interesting group and one that, in my mind, could yield some positive results finally. It's funny that you call it new blood because I'm pretty sure all <laughs> three of the players that Nagelsmann called up who have never represented the German national team before are all in their 30s. Right. I think that's I think that's a little funny, right? You, yeah. you rarely hear of someone getting called into a national team for the first time past the age of 30 or at the age of 30. And here Julian Nagelsmann is calling in three of them. Uh, when I look elsewhere on the roster, the addition of Hummels is, I think, an interesting one. I think that they, I, from what I've understood, the, uh, he and Nagelsmann relatively uh, get along. So I think that's a great addition. It's a good way to bring him back in. Whether I think he's... A solution for the future, I'm not sure, but I imagine he's also just, you know, tinkering and trying to figure a couple of things out. Uh, two things really surprised me. The first was bringing in four goalkeepers. I thought that was a little bit outrageous. Yeah. Um, because essentially by doing that, it leads into my second thing. By bringing in four goalkeepers, that means you cut down on the number of strikers, and it just makes me wonder whether or not this team is continuing its delusion in thinking that it's okay to just have Serge Gnabry starting up top. Because with that, you don't have Curry Mariani, you don't have Yusuf Makuku that you're able to call up, and you essentially only have Niklas Fulkrug up top yet again. But as we've seen before, even though Fulkrug is the only man on the roster who's a striker, that doesn't mean the manager of the German national team is going to start them at striker, let alone play them, like, at all. See Hansi Flick in the 2022 World Cup, where even though Fulkrug was pretty clearly the best player for that position, and he showed that in his few substitute uh, appearances, he was still getting benched for people like uh, like Sarah's <laughs> Now, I'll also say this. It's not Julian Nagelsmann's fault 
or I guess even in a way, Hansi Flick or Yogi Löw's fault that they haven't been able to, that German clubs haven't been able to find, scout, and develop a guy who is good enough to start at striker since Miroslav Klose. But what I will say is that just because they haven't been you know, that great doesn't mean that we should all sit around and be ridiculous and experiment with putting players out of position. Um, if that continues against the United States, I would be, as a Germany fan, I would be disappointed. But, um, I mean, it seems like that's every indication of where it's going to go. Yeah, and one of the things we do know about Nagelsmann is he's not afraid to use a strikerless system as he did with Bayern Munich. And even Kicker right now is predicting that it will be a 4 triple 2 setup. And while they do, I believe, predict that Fulkrug will start, uh, you have to think that a lot of the attack is going to be driven by players like Jamal Musiala and Florian Wirtz, who are expected to start together, which is an interesting pairing. Uh, Musiala... I thought after the last during the last World Cup and and in the immediate months after really struggled. Seems like he's picked his game back up. Florian Verts has just not ever looked comfortable on the national team scene. So their chemistry and how they work together, if indeed they do play together, it will be an interest interesting subplot for these games. But one of the things you hit on with uh, the selection of Matt Hummels really struck a chord with me because. If you go back to the All or Nothing documentary by Amazon Prime, the team came across as very immature. Uh, and I was shocked by this, to be honest with you. I mean, we saw live footage from meetings where Yeshua Kimmich is questioning Hansi Flick's tactics. And there was a back and forth there. And I think in the immediacy of that moment, given what was at stake, it came across really poorly. Uh, it looked shocking to Flick that, one of his key leaders was going to to kind of call him out like that in front of the whole team. Uh, there were other issues with it. I mean, Julian Brandt among the the few players that would show up late to meetings. The squad needed leadership, and while there were some leaders on that team, of course, in Manuel Neuer, Thomas Muller, they needed someone to really police what was going on. And it's not to say that someone's going to step in and tell Kimmich he's wrong in the middle of him speaking, but. It really did come across to me like a few players were really too empowered. And, and when you create that kind of doubt in a short tournament format, I think it just really put huge cracks in the foundation of the team. And the selection of players like Hummels and bringing back Thomas Muller, which I think a lot of us expected, I think that Nagelsmann is trying to offset some of that and to to bring up the maturity level of this team. And you know, in my opinion, I didn't expect to be sitting here thinking that this Germany group with so many veterans who were in their mid to late 20s or early 30s would be the type of team that needed a babysitter. And in fact, it seems like that's what they needed. I know that when I finished watching that doc, I was very disappointed in what I saw from the German players. But this is a new book for Nagelsmann. He's going to start writing it with these games. Jake, when did you ha first, did you have a chance to watch that documentary and what were your impressions on how Germany came across? And two, what do you think that Nagelsmann can do to change what has kind of been a losing culture with the team? I haven't been able to watch the documentary, so I'm sorry there. 
Um, you should. You should definitely check it out. I think it will change your impression of some of what was going on in the team. And to me, it was very shocking to see that Hansi Flick did not have the type of relationships and control over the group that I think many of us thought that he did. Yeah, I think that's a little bit shocking to hear. Like, out of context, of course, but that's yeah. still a little bit shocking to hear. As far as... um as far as what um, Nagelsmann is going to do in terms of leadership, I think that it's very funny that, well, I, w- I would love to know if the DFB thought that they were fractured or that the team was immature, because I find it very funny that their answer to um, a team that rejected a guy like Hansi Flick who has been in and around this team forever, who's coached a number of them both in the national team and at Bayern Munich forever. Um, and is in like his mid fifties that he wasn't able to get a wrangle on the group enough. So we're going to call in Julian Nagelsmann, who's only two years older than 34 year old <laughs> Thomas Muller. Um, I mean, I think it just all, boils down to the question that we continue to ask ourselves when Nagelsmann was in charge of Bayern. It's what is the dynamic going to look like? What is it going to look like when a guy who's again, like only two years older than Thomas Muller, right. And what about two years younger than people like Manuel Neuer, right. Even though Neuer's not within the team, What's it going to be like when a guy who's that young is telling everybody like what they should do? And I think this is this is essentially all just speculation at this point. It's all conjecture right. at this point because none of us have been inside a locker room. Amazon hasn't produced a a Bayern all or nothing documentary again since they did the last one. Um And so all we're just going to sit here and ask ourselves is, you know, oh, is it going to be okay if he's there or not? Oh, is, is, is this the right decision? He's so young. Right. And I think it's essentially going to play out in two ways. If it, if when he was at Bayern, he was able to get a good, decent grasp on the locker room. Right. Then I think that this is going to be fine. Right. Because I imagine there were some people that didn't love the way that Nagelsmann set his team up. But when we're talking about the German national team, right, we're talking about these are his first two fixtures in charge. Right. Which is why I say temper your expectations, because these are his first two fixtures in charge. He's never coached a national team before. It's an entirely different game. So pump the brakes on the hate a little bit. But if it's the opposite direction and he didn't really have control of the situation, then I guess you could look at it as a positive way there as well in that it's a different situation, right? He's not constantly around these players like he was at Bayern or at Leipzig or at Hoffenheim, right? He's not constantly forced to make those relationships, right? These are all very short-term kind of things right and so i think i think it'll be i mean 
I don't know. At this point, at this point, it's all conjecture. Unless you start having, you know, the guy who's the build mole um, from Bayern Munich, who, you know, if you believe the rumors, has indeed traveled with the German national team. Uh, if if there's a way that that guy starts leaking out, like horrid rumors of Nagelsmann like losing the locker room then I mean I want to believe it when I see it and hold all disbelief otherwise yeah the selection of Nagelsmann was very interesting to me there's an old adage in baseball that you follow up a disciplinarian type manager with a player's manager and in, right. it's kind of weird in this case with going from Flick to Nagelsmann because Flick in my mind when he was at Bayern was the ultimate player's manager he yes. had great communication skills. He had built these relationships. And seemingly all of that was more important than any of Flick's tactics because the 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 atmosphere around that team and how that team played together on the pitch and the relationships that Flick had with the players and what the players had with themselves among the, the players in the locker room, I, I thought that powered that group. When Flick got to Germany, he had that initial boost but then it just puttered out. And then what we, I think, saw through that documentary and through the games that came after the World Cup is that Flick had lost that team. The team did not believe in him. And I didn't think Flick would ever be the kind of coach that would be considered a disciplinarian by any means. But I think that the DFB, when they made this hire, it was a conscientious effort to try something a little more loose, to try someone who was maybe younger and quote unquote more hip <laughs> to what the players might be into to try and send a different message. And in the end, I think if that was what the aim was, uh, Germany was about as successful as they could get with that. But the other part of that is who else could they have gotten? I mean, Nagelsmann was it. There weren't even good choices here. It was basically you you beg Julian Nagelsmann to take this team over and hopefully he can catch lightning in a bottle for the Euros, or you hire a retread and hope for the best. So I think Germany made the right move. They did what they had to do, but there is, yeah. like you've said, zero guarantee that this works, and there will there is no absolutely no guarantee that there's going to be an immediate effect. Yeah, I mean, I think it was more of the latter than it was the former. No offense to Nagelsmann, but I think while that can be they made a decent they made a pretty good choice right if yeah. you're if you're it's like it's like this right it's like if you're telling yourself oh like i have to drive from one place to another and my one of my cars i have two cars and one of them like has been breaking down and it hasn't been working well and i have only one other option take this in charge and it's a Bentley, right? Like you, you, you could have made. Damn, Jake, so how much is the Daily Mail paying you these days? What? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. I don't have a garage. I live in New York. I live in New York City, Chuck. We we don't drive cars down there. Um, but I think that it was essentially what you were saying. You could have made a lot worse choices than Nagelsmann. And I think, it, you know, they didn't have a lot of choices other than Nagelsmann, especially if we're considering that like these days, Germany has an obsession with only hiring German managers and nobody else. 
I think that you essentially, and I don't want to, I don't want to like ring the death knell on Nagelsmann's tenure with the national team, but I remember the discourse all around the time that he got hired when it was like essentially people saying that Nagelsmann was only going to take charge up until the Euros. And then at that point, they were going to go out and they were going to go get um, Jurgen Klopp and have him take over from that point on. So as much as I, as a Germany fan, right, as an American fan, I hope that the U.S. wins 3-0, but I also just know that that's not going to happen. But uh, as a Germany fan, I'm going to hope that this situation turns out well. And if it doesn't, right, then it's just, it's Klopp coming in, right? Because I feel like there's still all indications that that's what's going to happen. As much as every Liverpool fan in the world doesn't want it to happen, I imagine that it probably is is trending towards that direction. And then at that point, it becomes a question of, you know, who does who does Klopp bring in? Is Klopp ready to coach at the national team level? Is he okay with coaching at the national team level? Things like that. So I think that as much as this this whole thing is a question of is Germany gonna succeed? Is Germany gonna do well? I feel like everybody that is surrounding this team or pays attention to this team or covers this team also has it in the back of their mind. Like, well, this might only be temporary. And uh, Jurgen Klopp might be the head coach of the German national team by this time next year. So I think that Nagelsmann is essentially being given this finite amount of time, if not by the day of Bay, then by the German press. And if it doesn't work out, then I guess the coach for the coaching prospects of the DFB um, down the line, there's an immediate fix. So if it doesn't work out, then it's like, oh, well. But I mean, in terms of everything else going on around it, whether it's, you know, like the culture of coaching, the culture within the team, uh, development of players, being able to develop a player that is not a midfielder, it's going to be um a longer term issue that they need to fix similar to the way that they fixed things after uh after what i want to say the 2006 world cup so i think that that's something that they'll they'll be sure to keep an eye on yeah and i think with Jurgen Klopp, I think, and I, again, I don't want to look past Nagelsmann's tenure either, but the reality of the situation is he's a young guy. The national team setup is not necessarily ideal financially for a younger manager like Nagelsmann who could make much more money uh, on the club scene. But I think the reality of it is that Nagelsmann leads this team through the Euros and perhaps a little bit longer after that, but I do think the Day Bay would target someone like Jurgen Klopp and especially Jurgen Klopp, because at this point in his career, he could be looking to wind down a little bit. And a national team set up like Germany, where he's fully invested, I think would do wonders for the squad and for Klopp alike. Uh, with Nagelsmann, it's just in my mind, it's a this is a, a a stop on the bus route for him. He is going to do the best he can, hopefully improve his value on the market, 
and then probably move on to another club team. My biggest issue with Nagelsmann, and, and, and in general, I like him, and I, I liked when Byron hired him. If Flick was going to leave, which I did not want to happen, Nagelsmann was the next best choice. And I felt the same way in this scenario with Germany, where if if you were going to fire Flick, and unfortunately, I had, I, I don't want to like backtrack on this, but I did call this before the last break. Uh, that that Flick was probably going to manage his last game. It, it, the team had just completely unraveled. If you were going to get rid of Flick, which should have been done, you needed to hire Nagelsmann. So I think in terms of making the moves, Germany's pushing the right buttons. My hope for this scenario with Nagelsmann is that the big criticism I had of him, he just tinkered too much at Bayern Munich. And now he's in a format where you can't tinker. There is no tomorrow. You get two games in a break, roughly, sometimes three, and that's all you have. You have less than two weeks of practice leading into these games. You don't have time to mess around. And Nagelsmann, I think, is his own worst enemy at times with how he pushes too many buttons, how he tries too many things and moves too many people around. If he can just focus, and and listen, maybe focus is a hard thing for him. <laughs> I mean, he he has a lot of activities that he does. Uh, he is a, a person that enjoys life. He's also a person that probably overthinks his job a lot. But hopefully in this format, it can eliminate some of that. And he can focus on putting the best 11 out there, identifying the most impactful subs and trying to win games. And while I don't expect Germany to look great, I do expect them to be competitive, which is, in, in my eyes, a very sad way to think when you're talking about facing off with the U.S. and Mexico. No offense to those squads, but Germany should be light years ahead of both of these teams. But the reality is that they're not. So right. what I want to see out of this is I want to see Germany look good in these games. I want to see them win at least one of them. And then I want to see some positive momentum building because Julian Nagelsmann, while I believe this is only a short stop for him, this is a very key juncture for this generation of German players. They have let Germany fans down. They have underperformed at two straight World Cups. And in general, they, they've looked really bad doing it outside of a few stretches. So Nagelsmann, if he can do anything, if he can make one impact, it's to bring back some of that historical greatness that Germany had. Just get that attitude and that feeling back. And it doesn't mean they'll win every game, but it means right. that they'll at least be competitive on a grand scale. What, what are right. you ultimately the issue, the issue with that is that, as you know, is a very finite window of opportunity in order to do that. And that's right. especially true because Germany's not playing Euro qualifiers. Right. Because they're hosting the tournament. It's they're not they're not playing against like, you know, teams in, in a competitive format. Now there's gonna be, you know, World Cup qualifying that's coming around the corner. So that might raise the stakes a little bit. It might give him like a cupcake match against a team like, I don't know, Andorra or something like that. But as much as it's like a small opportunity for, for Nogglesman, as much as we can't really go ahead and say that he, like if he loses this game against the United States or a game against Mexico, then his entire career is over or we know exactly how his career is going to go at the same time. Like while that can be true at the same time, I think it also needs to be true that they really need to win this. They really need yeah. to, 
build some belief within themselves and build it up, uh, build up, you know, that, that culture, again, as you mentioned before, but I mean, I'd also like to add, um, I think while Germany's coaching scandal is wild and insane and firing Hansi Flick short into his tenure for some people might be a little ridiculous. Um, there are worse coaching situations in the world and <laughs> Germany's playing two of them, right? Like long story short uh, with Mexico, they've essentially had three managers uh, since the world cup. They fired Tata Martino. Um, Martino is now coaching Lino Messi at inner Miami. Um, and then they hired somebody else. I forget who he got embarrassed at the nation's league Um in probably one of the most shambolic USA Mexico games I've ever seen with terrible refereeing and homophobic chants that ended up ending the game like two to, I want to say it was like three to four minutes early. Um, and then just like violence on the pitch. So it was, it was an absolutely disgraceful game. And then they hired somebody else who I believe is their coach now, and then they won the Euros. And then, I mean, the less that can be said about the Greg Burhalter situation, the better. But long story short on that, if listeners at home haven't paid attention, um, Greg Burhalter, the former and now current coach of the U.S. national team, essentially told Gio Reyna, who plays at Borussia Dortmund, that he was not going to be included often in the roster. He was pissed. Uh, his parents are Claudio Reyna, who's one of the best U.S. players ever, and Danielle Reyna, and they're both very close to both Greg and his wife. When they saw, essentially, that Gio wasn't getting played and that Greg talked about a situation involving Gio at a press conference, or not at a press conference, at a, just a leadership conference, um, they were pissed, and then they leaked to U.S. Soccer that Greg and his wife had a fight where Greg was physical back in, like, 1992, within months of them meeting each other when Greg and his wife, Rosalind, are at the University of North Carolina playing soccer together. Um, that launched a long investigation um, into any other, you know, habits of Burhalter's. at which point also at the end of the year, Burhalter's contract lapsed. So the U.S. was essentially going from one uh, coach to another, one interim coach to another. Um, the investigation essentially cleared Burhalter of any other wrongdoing and said that he was, you know, a fit candidate in order to be rehired and then he went out and he got rehired right it was it was a weird process u.s soccer essentially put all of these funds and all of this money into a coaching search only for them to just say yeah we're gonna go with the guy that was the guy that caused all of this caused the coaching search not really anything else so i mean i hope i hope german soccer fans kind of look at the germany situation and realize that you know while while the whole situation with flick was bad and they may not love the hiring of nagelsmann it could always be worse it could always be two nations who hate each other whenever they play each other um both having once in a generation scandals with their coaching
Yep. As always could be a lot worse. We know that. Yeah. So, so Jake, it was great catching up with you. Great talking shop on the German national team and hearing what you've been up to uh, for all of our listeners that might want to keep following you on social media or that, you know, might want to check out your work. Uh, where can they find you? You can find my work at uh, dailymail.co.uk or dailymail.com under the sports section. You can follow me on Twitter at Jake Fenner underscore. Awesome. So, uh, Jake, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break right now, and then we'll be back with some Bayern Munich chatter for the next segment of the Weekend Warm-Up podcast. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Weekend Warm-Up podcast. This is Chuck Smith. Big thanks to Jake Fenner for joining us in that opening segment. Loved being able to talk about the German national team, the hiring of Julian Nagelsmann, and where all of this stands with Jake. It had been a while since I had synced up with him. Uh, we always love to be able to bring our BFW alumni back and chat with them, see what they're up to, and also get their takes on things. So hope you guys enjoyed that. As for the rest of this show, we will be talking Bayern Munich. And there are a couple of big issues that arise this week in terms of transfers, and we'll get to those in a bit. But I did want to take this international break as an opportunity to take a look and see where things stand at the moment. Right now, Bayern Munich has eight wins, one loss, and two draws across, across all competitions. In the Bundesliga, they have five wins, no losses, and two draws. So all in all, very successful for this point in time. Uh, the season kicked off with that pretty awful effort in the DFL Super Cup. And, uh, you know, we were all a little bit disappointed by that, but things have picked up in terms of the win-loss record. Now, I wouldn't say that everyone is happy with how things look. There has been a lot of criticism of the manager, criticism of the players. It's a weird spot to be in because this Bayern Munich team is so talented. They have so much, uh, what other, how else can you say it? Talent. They have so much talent and there's, and they have good depth in certain areas, maybe not in others that allows them to have the advantage in every game that they enter. And every opponent that they've played against, Bayern Munich has been the better, more talented team. In the end, though, the results have absolutely turned out Bayern Munich's way, as stated by the record. But given the eye test, things have not always looked good. And there are a lot of different areas in this team where they can just be better. So we're going to take this opportunity to give our grades on where things stand at, at this moment. Uh, and we'll go position group by position group. We'll start with the goalkeepers. Uh, Sven Ulrich has seen the, the large majority of the playing time and has been solid. Daniel Peretz was able to get uh, some action one game day Bay Pokal and looked really good. Manuel Neuer is expected to be back after this international break at some point. It might not be the first game, although many are expecting that. Uh, but either way, he'll be back and bringing that stability to the lineup that he typically brings. On a 10-point scale, I would say that the goalkeepers have been a solid eight so far. And you might say, well, that's crazy. Ulrich hasn't been that good. He's had a couple of howlers. No, the goalkeepers have not been the reason Byron has struggled by any means. And I want to preface everything I say about the goalkeepers by acknowledging that if Manuel Neuer were healthy, it allows the whole team to operate a little bit differently, to play a little bit more confidently. So yes, he will make a big impact. But when called in to deputize, both Ulrich and Peretz have been really good. Uh, and I want to say that overall, they were called on to win games, and that's exactly what they've done. Now, have they been perfect? No. 
Uh, Peretz, it's tough to really have any strikes against him given how limited his playing time has been. But Sven Ulreich has done a, a good job in my eyes, and he has done what he's been asked to do. And I think at that point, that's really all that counts. He's a backup goalkeeper who was called into a tough spot against some good competition and in my mind has done admirably. So uh, eight out of 10 for the goalkeepers. I know a lot of you will think that that's high, but my expectations are guiding the team to victories. And for the most part, they've been able to do that. As for the defenders, this group has been a little bit interesting. Uh, Thomas Tuchel has made the decision that he does not necessarily like Matthijs Delict as, as much as maybe he should. And Delict has been injured for a, a, a large part of this opening of the season. And I shouldn't say a large part, but he's been banged up enough that his playing time hasn't been great. So when you look at the lick, it's a very incomplete effort. Uh, Dio Upamakano and Kim Min Jae have, have done the large majority of the work at center back. They've been pretty good. I think it's been up and down at times, but as a partnership, I think they're coming together individually. They've both had some great moments. They both have had a couple of moments where they've struggled. Uh, it's been good. And I think that, you know, over the course of the season, our expectation is that it will be great, but it has not been in my mind great just yet. But I do think that the center back group itself will be evolving to get to that great point. As for the rest of the defensive group, Alfonso Davies has been really solid. I think he's made some tangible improvements in his game, especially when it comes to keeping possession. I have been a big critic of his uh, losing the ball, and frankly, he's gotten a lot better at it. His defensive positioning, which sometimes can go awry, has not been awful. So big improvements from Davies. I think that, you know, it's no mistake that he's been linked to some major clubs in transfer rumors and that this could be a very rich, profitable summer for him. So I think that he has some incentive to turn it up and up his performance and fix things in his game. And I think he's done just that. Whatever the motivation is, he, he has made those improvements. Uh, Nusar Mizrawi has been a player who has maybe not played as much as many thought he would. And I think that he's been, uh, very solid in his appearances Tuchel, for whatever reason, does not seem to favor him as much as he does using Conrad Limer as a right back Limer, of course, is a, in a bit of a swing position. I'm going to include him as part of both groups. Uh, Limer as a right back has had some really great games and has some really awful games. It's nice to have that versatility though. So, uh, the acquisition of Limer still looks like a good one uh, just for his versatility alone and the the ability for Tuchel to be able to bounce him around as needed, especially with this thin roster. It's very tough to look at players like Bunasar and Rafael Guerrero. Uh, Guerrero has been hurt most of this early portion of the season. Saar, of course, is anchored to the bench. And even youngster Tarek Buckman, he's been out the entirety of the season so far as well. So this group has really come down to really six players in Upamakano, Kim and Jay, Delict, Davies, Mizrawi, and Limer. And I think that they've been good. Uh, it's going to sound weird, but I'm also going to give them an eight because I don't think they've been great. I think there's still a lot of work to be done. I do worry that Davies could lapse back into some of the issues that he's had in the past. I, I think sometimes having Davies and Mizrawi together as effective and awesome as they can look at times, it does still leave the center backs very susceptible to counterattacks. That does worry me, especially when you start to play against more powerful, more potent offensive teams. I think there's a, at least a little bit of a level of concern there. 
Um, and as I said about the center backs, Uba Makano has had some great moments and some down ones. Kim Min Jay, same deal. I mean, he's had some fantastic efforts, but then other ones where he just doesn't quite look comfortable or right. So eight out of 10, I think it's pretty fair for this group at this stage. They've by and large done their jobs as well. And that's limiting scoring chances and protecting those goalkeepers with, who without Manuel Neuer do require a little bit of an extra level of effort from the defense. As far as the midfield goes, uh, I'm only going to to group three players here. Uh, I know Guerrero played in the midfield, but he's been his time. I mean, again, I could really group him with both defenders and the midfielders, but it really doesn't matter. So if you want to include him in this, have at it. But Yashu Kimmich, Leon Gretzka, Limer, and I guess Guerrero will throw in. Kimmich has been good, uh, has not been his best season. I think Tuchel is more willing to call Kimmich out on the carpet for his off efforts and when Kimmich decides to stray from his own defensive responsibilities. Uh, Tuchel has, while he hasn't benched him much, he has taken him out of the game more than I think any other coach has at Bayern Munich. So there's definitely something to the fact that Kimmich and Tuchel are not completely aligned, and those are two enormous personalities and even bigger egos. So I expect them to continue to clash off and on through the media, but you know who knows what goes on behind closed doors. I think at some point, if Kimmich disagrees with the way he's being handled or the position that he's playing, he will have it out with Tuchel. But either way, Kimmich has been very solid. Leon Goretzka, I think, has been really, really good. I think he's had a couple of off games like everyone else on this roster. And of course, when Goretzka has an off game, I mean, it is crazy how many people crawl out of the woodwork and just can't wait to hop on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days and just start to hammer him. Uh, listen, I get it. Not everybody's a fan of Goretzka. His game is imperfect, just like everyone else on this team. But I don't feel like he's been quite as bad as some of the naysayers have said. I think he's been good. And I think that the midfield, when functioning together with Kimmich and Goretzka, has been very effective as a duo. Uh, Conrad Limer has been decent at the midfield. I think he he might, you could argue he's been slightly better as a right back. But either way, he's a solid player, provides some depth in an area of the team that really doesn't have any. I mean, of course, they could use Jamal Musiala there. He could certainly drop back if he had to. But right now, it's a three-man shop, four if you count Guerrero, who has really not been available this season. And I like the group. I really do. Uh, do I think that they can be better? Absolutely. And I think that the team is probably going to go out and try and get Tuchel, the tackling machine, the holding midfielder, defensive midfielder, whatever you want to call it. I think that's what they're going to do in January. Who that will be is uh, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it remains to be seen, but uh, we are absolutely going to uh, see what this midfield is made of as this season goes on, because I do think uh, ultimately in the end, Goretzka and Kimmich is going to be the winning duo. I think they work best together and no matter who Byron brings in in January, I think it ultimately will circle back to Kimmich and Goretzka being the preferred tandem, even if Tuchel doesn't want to see that. As far as a grade goes, I'm going to give them a 7 out of 10. Uh, like I said, I, I think they've been good. I think that they haven't asserted their what should be dominance as much as they, they can. I think that part of that is Tuchel tinkering a little bit with his midfield combinations. And I think the, the quick hook on Goretzka, the minute he has an off game, uh, Tuchel looks to get him out of there, which I think does ruin a little bit of the chemistry. So 7 out of 10, I think it's a pretty fair grade. I think they've been good. Uh, but the potential for them to be better 
and the lack of depth, I, I knocked them a couple of points for that because the group would probably be uh, a little bit more comfortable in the eyes of some fans if the depth was a little bit better. As far as the attack goes, um, of course, we have Jamal Musiala, Serge Gnabry, Harry Kane, Leroy Sané, Kingsley Coman, Eric Maxim, Chupo Moting, Thomas Muller, and Matisse Tell. Very, very strong group. Uh, I'll start out with the rating on this one. I'm giving them an eight and a half out of 10 because I think they've been very good. But again, I'm knocking them a point here because one, they have not been totally fluid and functional and working together yet. They're still feeling out how this whole thing works with Harry Kane, which in my mind is a little bit disappointing because they played this entire group really played with Robert Lewandowski. They should know how to operate with a world-class striker. And I know Lewandowski and Kane are not exactly uh, like for like in terms of their styles, but the point being that they are both target men, both need to be on the ball. Both need to be set up with scoring opportunities because they can finish. It has not been totally fluid there the chemistry in the attack has not been where i think it should be so that's why this group got knocked but when i look at individually how they're playing i like a lot of what i see uh jamal musiala to start off with i think has been very good we saw him struggle after the world club cup last year and at times in the beginning of this season he, he still seemed like he was forcing things if there's a big critique i have with him is that he often is looking for his own shot instead of looking to set up others when he has opportunities. You know, I, I think that that can be something that changes over the course of the season and that as he matures and as his game matures, he'll start to figure out those things a little bit better than he is right now. I think as a group, uh, that's part of the reason why Kane can't get involved because so many of these guys are looking for their own shot all the time. They're actually wasting opportunities to feed Kane, but that, that's a conversation for another day. But Musiala, I think, has been pretty good. Serge Gnabry, before his injury, I thought was good. He was having a good season. We all know how mercurial he can be, how up and down his seasons can be. So far, so good with Gnabry. He seems to be one of the preferred starting wingers with Leroy Sané for Tuchel, uh, and I think he's been good. Uh, of course, with Gnabry, sometimes you have games where he's just non-existent. Uh, we've seen that a little bit, but... Overall, Gnabry has been good, and I think that where his game is at, I think you know if he comes back from this injury and his cardio is good to go, he'll be able to make an instant impact. Uh, Harry Kane, I think, has been really good. He's been asked to play a little bit differently. Tuchel wants him dropping a little bit deeper to help with the buildup uh, and help facilitate a little bit. I don't know that I necessarily like this because I think he you brought him here to be a scorer, and you need to be the kind of team that is feeding the striker, and right now, they're just not always looking to do that. I think that's a big problem with the team and something that could prove to be very detrimental later in the season. Uh, we've seen how this attack can go hot and cold when it's powered by Sané, Gnabry, and Musiala. Kane should be the steady force that is there to be consistent and guide this attack and get the ball into the net. Right now, he's been productive, but probably not as productive as I think many of us thought he would be. And I attribute that to the fact that he has to play a little bit differently than he has in the past. And uh, listen, I think it will get better. I think it can, but there's going to have to be some sacrifices made from some other players in terms of the way that they play, the style that they play and, and what they're looking to do on the pitch. But Kane looks like he's been worth every Euro that Bayern Munich has spent on him. 
Uh, whether that's 100 million or 95 million, we don't know for sure. We only know what Uli Honus tells us. Uh, Leroy Sané has been Bayern's most outstanding attacker this season, has been a total enigma. He's just been great. Now, again, we've knocked Sané in the past because he also can be a bit of a roller coaster, but it's been mostly ups. There's been a couple of down moments for him. Uh, the last game in particular against Freiburg, I didn't think he was great, but uh, Sané has has had a just a tremendous start to his season, and that's a great thing. It seems like he's putting it all together, and I think all of the coaching that he's had over the course of his career and what some of those coaches have tried to instill in him is all coming together. He's becoming that complete player, that game changer that I think many thought, fans thought he could be during the great Leroy Sané uh, courtship that we had a couple of years ago by Brazo. So Sané has been terrific. I mean, what can you say about him? Uh, he's just just been really, really good. Uh, Kingsley Coman, I think there's some areas of improvement for Coman. Uh, he's still disruptive. He's making more mistakes this year than I think I would care to see out of him. Uh, he's a player who I feel like functions best when he's facilitating and I think that he's still, like many of his teammates, trying to find that balance between facilitating for a player like Kane and, and looking to create his own shot. It hasn't not been the strongest start to the season for Coman, but it doesn't mean he's been bad. He's been he's been pretty good. So uh, I don't really have too much of a problem with him uh, and what he's doing. I, I would like it to be a little bit better, and I think a lot of fans would agree with that. But Coman is is the type of guy that over the course of the season, I think, will improve. Uh, Thomas Muller, I would say he's been underutilized. Still feel like this team will function best with Muller and Musiala playing together. I don't think we're ever going to see that. I think it's going to be an either-or situation. And knowing how Tuchel has handled Musiala so far, I think Moose is going to get the majority of the playing time. Uh, Muller has been impactful as a sub. Uh I would have really liked to seen a lot more out of him against Freiburg. I think he had the opportunity to prove himself. And quite frankly, while he wasn't bad in terms of leadership and organization and things like that on the pitch, he just wasn't productive in the attack. And right now Musiala is, and Tuchel's going to look at that and weigh it heavily in favor of the younger player. Uh, Muller in my mind has a lot to offer this team. I think though the large majority of his season is going to be spent on the bench which is going to probably make the hashtag Mueller Mafia very upset. So uh, Mueller, good, not great, did not take advantage of some of the opportunities that he's been given. But I, I give him a lot of credit because you know there hasn't been any meltdown. There haven't been any leaks to the press. He's handled this like a total professional. I just think Tuchel's missing the mark a little bit by not using Mueller more. And that's, I guess, all about all I can say about that situation. Uh, Eric Maxim Chupo Moting, his backup striker. He's been moved around a little bit by Tuchel. Dependable, makes an impact when he comes on. What more can you ask for out of a player in that role? So Chupo's been good. Batiste Tell has argue, arguably been the attack's third best player as a super sub. Now, listen, I don't mean that he's currently their third best player, but in terms of production and impact on the score sheet, Tell has done a hell of a job. Uh, youngster with a great attitude uh, has really embraced the culture at Bayern Munich. It works hard. I mean, what more can you say about him? He's just done everything that he's been asked to do. I like him as a wing. I know some people don't. 
I don't think you have to be a traditional wing to play at Bayern. Uh, I, I think Tell could really evolve into something good in that position. Uh, it's not to say that he can't play striker, but I like his ability to break people down from the outside and work his way in. And he, yes, he also is a player who will shoot rather than pass. If, if there's any critique of that, it's that he just needs to mature a little bit with his game and find those open teammates after he beats a defender, which I think once he does that, he's absolutely going to be devastating. But Tell has been really good, and his uh, his trajectory is just really – it's off the charts. I mean, he keeps getting better and better every time we see him. Uh, a true gem and probably Brazo's biggest heist. So uh, big credit to Tell for the improvements that he's made in his game over the course of the past year. Uh, the attacking group as a whole, you know, what can you say? Uh, they they really have been good, but the potential for what they could be is is what holds them back. So eight and a half, I think, is fair. Being productive is great, and the numbers on on paper are good, but what we're seeing with our eyes and what we're seeing, you know, when we envision this squad is what this group could be, and I think that that ceiling is so high that you know it's a little bit of a letdown with how they've chosen to perform as a unit. So it will get better. And it's a, it, listen, that's a hell of a grade uh, for not really functioning at your best. So I really do like that, that Byron has accumulated the talent that it has. It just needs to function better together. Finally, the last thing that I'll grade is the coach. Uh, Tuchel, I don't agree with all of his moves. I'm not on the Tuchel out bandwagon by any means. I'm willing to give him the chance to to show what he can do his time at Bayern Munich last season was not great I think it created a lot of doubt for some fans his tactics are not always on point with this particular group his strategies for this particular group don't always look great uh, I don't know if it's sustainable to keep dropping Harry Kane deeper when you you brought him in and spent all this money to, ha to have him score I mean, we know what this attack looks like. We know what this team looks like when they're absent, that kind of striker. And I don't want to get to the point where Kane is is so deep and he's facilitating so much that he's not the primary scorer. He's not the primary scoring option. And I feel like at times there's great stretches of games where he's just not involved. And And I know some of that is on him. He needs to adjust parts of his game. But Byron, the players around him have not, made any adjustments they're still functioning like they did last season when there was no major striker they're still functioning like they did in Julian Nagelsmann's uh, last complete season where Robert Lewandowski melted down about the lack of service and looks that he was getting there was a lot to that and Tuchel has done nothing to change it and I think ultimately if he doesn't start to shift that and get that focus back on Kane it is going to be a problem that kills them later in the season uh, how Tuchel has handled players on the roster, again, I don't always agree with it. I think he's got a massively quick hook with players like Muller and Goretzka and DeLict. Like he's just looking for a reason. And that's no way for players of that stature and that ilk to have to, to work every day. I don't think it's fair to them. And it, listen, if it was universal across the board that, that Tuchel was treating everyone like that, then great. But I do. I, I just think that there, there's a handful of players right now that he will just quick hook out of there. And I don't absolve Dio Upamakano from that list. I think if Upamakano has a bad game, 
he'll be he'll get that hook right out and Delict will be right in. And Tuchel might not like playing either of them at times, but he he seems to have a group that that he has no patience for, and then another group that he has extreme patience for. So um, that, in my mind, can and will be a problem over the course of this season. Uh, Results-wise, Tuchel's getting the results that I think you need. I know people don't like the draws that Bayern Munich has had in the league. I, I, you know, there was obviously the big letdown with the DFL Super Cup, but there's so many extenuating circumstances with that game. Being the first real game, Harry Kane literally inking his deal that morning, flying in the night before, massive distractions all over. Uh, it's tough to really put much into thinking that Tuchel just didn't have his team prepared because – I don't know if anybody was prepared to play at that point. It had been such a crazy week prior. Either way, I think Tuchel is a seven right now. And I know some of you will be like, that's way too high. Others will be like, you're an idiot. That's way too low. But I think it's fair because I don't think he's pushing all the right buttons tactically and with personnel management. Um, But a seven, not only is it obviously a passing grade for this scale, but it's not a bad grade. I mean, a perfect 10 would mean Bayern was undefeated. They were racking up, you know, four and a half goals a game and, and you know, had like all but one or two clean sheets. Uh, in my mind, Tuchel's got to get more out of this group. He's got to extract more out of them. He's got to start to not just be the guy who has the reputation for tearing things down over the course of his tenure. Uh, the players right now seem to be responding to him. I think some of that could be at risk if he does not handle some of the personnel properly. Uh, But again, these are things that he's going to have to make adjustments for too. Uh, Tuchel, what we do know about him is he's very stubborn at times. So if he can start to make some changes in his mindset with how he handles players, and if he can maybe be a little bit more tactically flexible in terms of getting other players involved in the attack, um, I think the team will be better off for it, but seven out of 10 for two goal. I think that's good. And I know like all these, all of these ratings are subjective. Uh, I think given the talent level that he has, he's not getting as much out of it as he can. And that's really the main detractor for him in my eyes, but he's doing a good job overall. And he's getting the results that I think fans need to see at this point in the season. Um, You know, you don't draw with Leverkusen and you don't draw with Leipzig and, and that rating probably jumps up by a point and a half. What can I say? But uh, overall, I think the squad's doing really well. They just need to refine some things and improve some things. So uh, drop me your comments and let me know how you think those position groups are doing, how you rate the groups. And I would love to hear that and especially like to hear how you rate Tuchel because I know it's been a very divisive topic among the fan base at BFW. Finally, the last thing that I'm going to hit on, and no, it won't be the Phillies and their miraculous run through the playoffs right now. If at the time of this recording, they're up two games to one over the Braves. Hopefully they close it out tonight on Thursday, which would be awesome and uh, would probably uh, knock back my streaming plans <laughs> a little bit further. But hey, I'm all in on the MLB playoffs. But the final topic will be those recent transfer rumors involving Jamal Musiala, and Yashua Kimmich. And it's kind of weird to hear those two, or I'm sorry, I should say three because of Alfonso Davies as well. Those three players linked to moves away. And I'm going to start with Musial because that's the, the least likely. We know that any club on earth would want him. We know that Madrid and Man City are two places that would really like to have him. 
Bayern Munich holds all the cards here. I don't think you have to worry about a move on Musiala. I think that's mostly conjecture for a later time. I do expect when when he's entering his lame duck year for many clubs to be lobbing, you know, nine-figure bombs at Bayern Munich trying to convince us convince them to sell. I kind of get the impression that Musiala would be willing to move on at the end of his contract right now, but you don't have to worry about that yet because there's quite some time before that happens. So let's just zoom past Musiala and focus more on Kimmich and Davies because Kimmich is a player who I think everybody thinks has the Bayern DNA that once he made his move here, he was going to become a lifer and stick it out here. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure because I don't think Tuchel and Kimmich really have hit it off in the best way. I think that there's definitely some friction there. I don't think Kimmich appreciated or liked the fact, or I shouldn't even say liked because it's still going on. I don't think he likes the fact that Tuchel's pushing so hard to get a number six. I think Kimmich views himself as a six. And even though Kimmich might have some inclinations to get further up the pitch, I think Tuchel, I mean, Kimmich likes being the six. He likes being the defensive midfielder. He likes being that the kind of player at that position who can contribute offensively. He thinks he's a dynamic weapon in that regard. I think there are a lot of things going on with the Tuchel-Kimmich relationship. And I think that how that plays out over the next season is going to determine what happens with Kimmich. Uh, most recently, uh, we heard that Manchester City and it's funny, Manchester City and Real Madrid are two of the teams that we hear most about. Uh, Manchester City is is interested in Kimmich. We've also heard that Madrid and FC Barcelona all are also interested. But the Man City interest comes at an odd time because Pep Guardiola is no doubt going to be looking to upgrade his team for next season. And while it seems very unlikely that Bayern Munich would sell Kimmich, if Kimmich's not happy... We all know what Kimmich is like. He is very demanding. He will work back channels. He will do everything he can to get what he wants. There will not be any stopping him on that quest. So if Kimmich and Tuchel can't get aligned and if Tuchel keeps doing things that irk Kimmich, it wouldn't shock me to see Kimmich start kicking the tires on a move next summer. And there would be no better place for Kimmich to go than to a coach who understands and respects Kimmich's game as much as Pep Guardiola does. I think Pep would love to have Kimmich on his squad. And I think he would use Kimmich in a way that would probably probably be more of a 6-8 hybrid role. And, and knowing how Pep handles players, I think he would call it whatever the hell Kimmich wanted him to call it, as long as Kimmich got the play that he wanted to, uh, the way he wants to. Uh, I, I don't think it would matter much to him. So I do worry a little bit about that, plus the fact that that Man City can pay Kimmich more than just about anyone else. And, you know, if Kimmich decides he wants to make that move and, and get that money and play for Pep, uh, Man City will also be able to pay Bayern Munich something in the neighborhood of what Bayern Munich would want. So put a little bit more credence into Kimmich and Man City than I do anything involving Jamal Musiala right now. But more than any of the transfer rumors, Alfonso Davies and the interest that he's getting from Man City and Real Madrid, I think is hardcore legit. I think that it's not just a matter of Davies and his agent leaking things to the media and Davies' agent being so brazen to talk about interest from other clubs. I mean, it's a bad look, but I get what he's doing. There are, there are a couple of things that, that Davies' agent is doing here. 
One, he's driving up the market value for Davies, no doubt. So whether he inks a, a new contract with Bayern Munich or goes elsewhere, he's going to get paid a hell of a lot more than he's making now. Let's just get that out of the way. So no matter where he signs, Davies is going to get paid. Uh, probably more than double what he's making now, which is the figure I forget, but it, it trust me, it will be double what he's making. With interest from Real Madrid, I think there's a finite amount of cash that they have to spend. We've seen 70 million is what they would offer for him. I think Byron would laugh at that. I think you're talking for Davies, nine figures. Not only is Davies, uh, you know, one, he's still so young and has definitely not scraped the ceiling on what he can become. I and mean, we've seen just how much talent he has and how much ability that, that he can bring to the pitch, but he kill, still can be so much better if he wants to be. And he's going to need to be in an environment with a coach that's going to understand how to push him to that greatness, that level of greatness that I think that he can get to. I wouldn't say he's pushing that envelope right now. Bayern Munich, he's been better than he was last year, and he's been very good. But I still feel like his game has so much more to it, and there's still so much more there that he's got to really just focus himself, bear down, and really want to become that player. And I think he'll get to it. But can he be in an environment where that becomes his focus, his everything? I, I don't know. And it doesn't seem like at Bayern Munich right now that he's going to get there quickly. doesn't mean he can't get there or he won't get there, but it's going to take some time. Uh, perhaps a switch to a club like Man City where you would have Pep bearing down on him day after day could push him to those to those heights. And that's where I get worried because, again, Real Madrid, the interest is what it is. Real Madrid is it's the trophy club for a lot of players. And I have zero doubt that Davies would want to play there. I think he would jump at the opportunity if all things were equal. However, uh, you know, you will have Bayern's ability to, to probably pay him as much as Real Madrid would pay him. So that nullifies that advantage. But the X factor when if you're building up something to come in like off the top rope, you know, in a war between Bayern Munich and Real Madrid, you definitely have Man City entering the fray there uh, with a hammer, not like a steel chair or anything you might see in wrestling, I guess. But I mean, they have a hammer and that is the ability to pay Davies more than anyone and the ability to pay Bayern Munich a requisite fee that would be required, which I would guess would be, north of nine figures for sure. Uh, I worry about this. I think Davies is looking at his prospects and he's ha taking a worldview in terms of being a global star. As much as everyone loves Bayern Munich, Davies is going to get one third of the attention at Bayern as he would get at a club like Real Madrid or Man City. And, and those are just facts. Bayern is a world power. They are a classic club one of the top clubs on earth, but Real Madrid is Real Madrid. Man City has the power and backing of the Premier League. And with the Premier League comes television deals that give you exposure to so many more areas and to so many more people. And I think Davies, much like Robert Lewandowski, has a brand. And that brand is something that he wants to promote and build. And what better platform to do that than in the Premier League? So I do worry about Kimmich and Davies. Musiala is that's a that is a story for another day. Uh, that interest is going to just continue to grow in him, and it in the end it will be up to Musiala if he wants to move at the time that he's really eligible to do that. 
But Kimmick and Davies, I think, are going to be tempted next summer. And it's going to be a very, very uh, intense time for Bayern Munich fans because those are two really generous players that represent this generation of Bayern Munich. And if they were to leave, it would not just leave a, a gaping hole in the roster, but in the whole aura of the club, you don't lose players like that in their prime. So it would be very, very, it would be detrimental to the club if something like that were to happen. So those rumors are out there. We don't know if they will, you know, actually come to fruition just yet, but uh, I wouldn't just dismiss them like so many other people have. That'll about do it for this show. I hope you enjoyed the talk and chatter about the DAF Bay and the German national team and what's going on there. And also, uh, like I said, drop us some comments on how you think the team is doing. Maybe I was a little generous with my grades. Maybe I was a little too harsh. Love to know what you guys think and where you think the squad is stacking up at this point as well. As always, you can get me at the Barrel Blog on Twitter. You can get the site at Bavarian FB Works. You can get our Tweetmeister Tom Adams at Tommy Adams 71. You can get I Need No Name at BFWINNN. You can get Siler at CYL3R. Still bugging me that, that name. <laughs> Just because I have to spell it out. It takes an extra second or two. But like I said, you can get all of those great podcasters and writers at BavarianFootballWorks.com plus everyone else who our writers are doing a fantastic job covering Bayern Munich and the German national team. So give us a look, give us a shout, drop some comments on this post uh, on Spotify, on social media, wherever you want to hit us with comments. Uh, and you know what? Enjoy the Germany games for the next few days. Prep yourself for the return of Bayern Munich football coming back next week. Have a couple of beers on me and we'll see you next time.